Today, on The Voice of Prophecy, we're going to look at the increasingly popular claim that the New Testament is the work of the Roman Emperor Constantine, and we'll look at whether or not you can believe that the New Testament you now have is the one that the apostles intended you to have. Welcome to another edition of The Voice of Prophecy. Today we're going to look at Constantine's Bible. You know, a few years back I was visiting the city of Rome, which I've got to say is one of my all-time favorite places. And a friend and I decided we were going to go and find the Milvian Bridge, which is just a little ways off of the usual tourist destinations. And the reason I wanted to see that bridge is because it played such a pivotal role in the development of Western civilization. That bridge, the Milvian Bridge, provides the backdrop for one of those moments in history when absolutely everything changes. Now, when I got there, when I found the bridge, it was everything that I hoped for. I mean, it wasn't fancy, it's not well marked, but it was definitely an item I wanted to cross off of my bucket list. You see, back in the 4th century, in the year 312 AD to be exact, the Milvian Bridge in Rome was an important access point across the Tiber River. And on October 28 of that year, happens to be my birthday, October 28 of that year, I can always remember the date. On that day in 312, it became a flashpoint in this battle between two Roman emperors. You see, after the emperor Diocletian stepped down, retired in 305 AD, there was kind of this four-way contest to see who would become the one and only ruler of the empire. Now, I'm simplifying that a little bit. It was really a more complex story, but that's kind of what happened. And by 312 AD at Milvian Bridge, there were two contenders for the western part of the empire. There was the emperor Maxentius and the emperor Constantine. Now, of course, You already know who won the battle, at least you would know if you weren't sleeping your way through history class. Constantine won that uh, fight at that bridge, and he only had half the force of Maxentius. But you know, it's not really the military victory at Milvian Bridge that proves to be the most important component to this story. That's not really the reason I'm fascinated by the bridge. What gets my attention is what happened the day before on October 27. That's the day when Constantine allegedly had his famous vision, or, according to some accounts, he had a dream. So whether it was a dream or a vision, it kind of goes like this. Constantine suddenly sees a cross up in the sky. Some accounts say it was superimposed over the sun. And then he heard a voice commanding him in Latin, in hoc signo vinces. So all the Latin majors out there, you're going to have to forgive my pronunciation. I'm guessing at it. It's been years since I sat in a Latin class. But it was in hoc signo vinces, which is Latin for in this sign you will conquer. In other words, in the sign of the cross. And as the story goes, Constantine took that to mean that he would now on, from now on, be fighting under the protection of the Christian God. And when he won the Battle of Milvian Bridge, he declared the Roman Empire to be Christian, that he would be fighting under the Christian God. And he himself became a Christian, although there's some question mark over that. And he converts the entire empire, or at least opens the entire empire, to Christianity. Now, his soldiers were told to put a Christian cross on their shields, or more accurately, 
a symbol known as a key row. Now, those are two letters of the Greek alphabet. The, the, the key row is kind of like this slanted letter X with the top bent over, so it looks like a P or an R. And, and that's a symbol you can still see a lot of in some Christian communities, and in particular in the Church of Rome, where you would expect to find it. Now, on one account, one thing that I read, it actually says that Constantine took some of his soldiers and marched them through the Tiber River, and when they came out the other side, he said, there, now you're all baptized Christians. So this is the big moment in history when the tide turns in the Roman Empire in favor of Christianity. This is the moment when Christianity finally comes into favor with the Romans. This is the moment when the persecution stops. Diocletian had been particularly hostile to Christians, forbidding them from holding public office or serving in the military. Christians were outcasts with him. And Diocletian, after consulting with the Oracle of Apollo, who was the sun god, or a variation of it, he launched one of the bloodiest persecutions of Christians in the entire history of Christianity up to that point. In 303, Diocletian publishes something called the Edict Against the Christians, and he orders the destruction of Christian churches all across the empire. And then a fire breaks out in the imperial palace, and the Christians get the blame. And after the fire, Diocletian unleashes unspeakable cruelties on the followers of Jesus. And I can't even tell you about most of it, because it's the kind of stuff that would keep you awake at night if you knew about it. The persecution lasts on and off, this brutal persecution, for about 10 years, which is why a lot of Bible students believe that the persecutions mentioned in Revelation 2 verse 10 are said to last for 10 days, because days are often used to represent years in the prophecies of the Bible. So, after the persecution, you can imagine the relief that Christians felt when the Roman emperor suddenly becomes a Christian. The persecution stops. Religious liberty is reinstated. And most importantly, Christianity suddenly becomes fashionable. You see, when your life is on the line, you have to mean it to be a Christian, to be a part of the movement. But when it suddenly becomes the thing to do, when it becomes a means of earning the emperor's favor, well, it's at that point that some of the early fervor and doctrinal certainty of the early church starts to get compromised. You suddenly have Romans Roman pagans, that is, joining the Christian church, even if they don't mean it, even if they're just going through the motions. And that much is pretty solid history. A lot of the problems we have in the world of religion today can actually be traced back to this point in history, when the church and the state were suddenly blended, which history has told us since, is almost never a good idea. Now, What's interesting about this whole story is the fact that Constantine himself apparently put off his own baptism until shortly before his death, which makes me question the depth of his personal religious conviction. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, there's no question the emperor went Christian. There's, there's no question he made it the religion of the empire. But was his political motive stronger than his religious motive? And to what extent did Constantine actually hinder the advancement of Christianity by introducing uniquely Roman political features into the practice of the faith? I guess only time and eternity are going to tell us what the emperor's motives really were. And we could spend hours talking about Roman political influence on the practice of Christianity. But for the time being, for our purposes today, I want to turn to a famous church council in 325 AD called by Constantine in the city of Nicaea. 
And the reason we need to look at that counsel is because it is becoming increasingly popular today to suggest that not only did Constantine's conversion lead to a blending of paganism with Christian practice, but that Constantine also determined which books would appear in your Christian New Testament. And we really want to look at that claim. So we're going to take a short break. I'll be back in just a moment. Life and its daily challenges can weigh us down, even when we have the best of intentions, leaving us with more questions than answers. Is it possible to have true peace and happiness in life? Are you searching for answers to this and other of life's most challenging questions? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7922 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online or on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. Find answers in guides like The Secret of Happiness and Is God Fair? You'll find answers to the things that matter most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. And we're back from our break, and today on The Voice of Prophecy, we're talking about the Emperor Constantine and the obvious influence he has had on the practice of Christianity over the last 1,700 years. Prior to the emperor's conversion, Christianity was a persecuted faith, and then suddenly it becomes the faith of the whole empire. And as you might expect, it started to take on a distinctly Roman flavor. And that, of course, really shaped the history of Western Europe in particular. But now let's go to 325 AD, and let's talk about the Council of Nicaea. It was the first so-called ecumenical council, unless, of course, you count the meeting held in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. This would be the first ecumenical council. There were a number of issues on the agenda, but there were two issues in particular that really occupied the council's attention. One of those issues was the selection of a unified date for the celebration of Easter, because different churches celebrated it at different times. And picking a single date was an attempt to unify global Christianity, or more exactly, the Christianity of the Roman Empire, because there were absolutely Christians outside of the Roman Empire. So one issue, the date for Easter. The other big agenda item had to do with the nature of Jesus. And this was the really big item, the reason they called the council. You see, a renegade priest by the name of Arius was out there promoting the idea that Jesus was actually a subordinate being to God the Father. He suggested that Jesus was actually created by God at some point. And while Jesus might have existed before his birth as a human being, he was nevertheless still a created lesser being. And as you can imagine, that was a serious problem for most Christian believers who long believed in the divinity of Christ. It was well established by this point. Out of 300-some bishops in attendance at the Council of Nicaea, there were only two who refused to sign a document we know today as the Nicene Creed, a document designed to refute the heresy of Arianism and confirm the divinity of Christ. And that was the big idea at the Council of Nicaea. That is the primary reason that they called the council. 
But in recent years, it's also become popular to suggest that the Council of Nicaea also decided which books would go into the New Testament and which ones would not. And in particular, they picked four Gospels out of supposedly dozens and dozens of available versions of the Gospel. And maybe the most notable example of this in recent times would be Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, which is only a work of fiction. That's where you find it in the bookstore, under fiction. But still, Dan Brown kind of gave this concept new wings in our day and age. He suggested that the early Christians thought of Jesus as nothing but a mere mortal, a mere human being, and that Constantine basically collated an entirely new Bible at the Council of Nicaea, a Bible that left out any reference to Jesus not being divine. And of course, this whole idea has been bolstered by the recent popularity of alternate gospel accounts like the long-lost Gospel of Judas, which got this huge push from National Geographic just a few years ago. So here's the question I want to ask. Did Constantine really invent the divinity of Christ, and did he essentially give us the New Testament? Did Constantine edit the Bible? Did he scale down the number of gospel accounts to consolidate his own political power? Well, the answer to that is no. Now, for the record, I'm not a fan of Constantine. And I do think there are clear examples where his influence over the Christian faith was absolutely detrimental to its practice. No question about it. But this idea that he basically invented the divinity of Christ and that he gave us the New Testament, well, that, that's ludicrous. Even liberal scholars like Bart Ehrman, a guy who thinks the New Testament contains, quote, lies, even Bart Ehrman admits that the divinity of Christ was well established in the first century of the church. Here, let me read something he said about the Da Vinci Code. This is quoting Bart Ehrman now. Our earliest surviving Christian author is the Apostle Paul. Paul was producing his letter about 20 or 30 years after Jesus' death, 250 years before the Council of Nicaea. And in them, it becomes abundantly clear that Paul understands that Jesus was, in some sense, divine. And that's the end of the quote. Now remember, this isn't Billy Graham. This isn't William Lane Craig. This isn't Ravi Zacharias. This is Bart Ehrman, a guy who struggles with the idea that the New Testament is actually divinely inspired. If somebody would want to support the idea that the divinity of Christ happened 300 years later, that was a new idea, it would be a guy like Bart. But he doesn't do it because he knows that's not true. The idea is nonsense. And this idea that the canon of the New Testament just suddenly came into existence at the Council of Nicaea, look, the, the canon of the New Testament, the books of the New Testament, that wasn't even on the agenda. There is no record of these guys discussing that topic. You know, in recent years, I've heard all sorts of people say that back in the 4th century, there were dozens and dozens and dozens of competing gospel accounts written by all kinds of authors. And out of all those different gospels, the Council of Nicaea picked the four that you have today, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But again, it's nonsense. This just isn't true. The New Testament didn't just pop into existence after Constantine converted. It's not like Christians suddenly realized they should probably have a Bible, but for 300 years they had no scriptures of their own. Now, it, it is true that the final canon of the New Testament did develop over time, but don't let anybody ever tell you that there wasn't widespread agreement very early on. 
We unfortunately live in a world where a lot of people are getting the religious information from three-minute YouTube videos or through internet memes that get passed around on Facebook. But very few people actually take the time to look at real history. Honestly, the past isn't shrouded in mystery, at least not enough to warrant all these conspiracy theories. We actually have a great deal of historical certainty about where we come from as Christians. And it's probably time for Christian believers to spend more time learning about the origins of their faith. At the end of the second century, the early church father and Greek theologian Irenaeus wrote a book called Against Heresies. And, and that was a book designed to deal with the inroads that Gnostics were making into Christianity. Now, the Gnostics were dualists who were almost the opposite of the Arians. See, while Arius denied that Jesus was fully God, the Gnostics were almost at the other end of the spectrum. They denied that God could possibly be physical or material. So Jesus didn't come as God in human flesh. They, they denied that. And I guess we could probably discuss that for an entire program on another day. But what's really important for our discussion right now is the fact that Irenaeus, essentially a century and a half before the Council of Nicaea, identifies four Gospels. And only four. Now, if there were 80-some competing Gospels at the Council of Nicaea, how could Irenaeus possibly name the four that you have in your New Testament right now? Don't you think that's a good question? I'm going to come back in just a moment after our break, and we'll talk about how he managed to pull that off. Are you searching for answers to life's most difficult questions? Answers to help you make sense of the things that are happening right now in your life? Answers to the deepest questions in life, like... Can God really forgive me? Guilt and shame can be terrible burdens to carry and can leave us wondering if God really can love us and accept us. Are you wondering if there really is a chance for true happiness in this life? If there is a secret to living a happy, contented life in a world of uncertainty? Well, if you're searching for answers to these and other of life's most challenging questions, we are here to help. The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at our toll-free number, 888-456-7922, for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. You'll find answers in guides like, Does My Life Really Matter to God? and From Guilty Sinner to Forgiven Saint. You'll find answers to the things that matter most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides as the major themes of the Bible come to life. Begin your journey to discover answers to life's deepest questions and log on today to BibleStudies.com. Welcome back from the break. Today we're talking about this whole idea that the New Testament was manufactured at the Council of Nicaea. That Constantine blacklisted all kinds of other Gospels in order to push through his own personal agenda. And just before the break, I was talking about Irenaeus, a, an early church scholar who mentions the four Gospels we now have. And he mentions them in a book called Against Heresies. Now, that's a book he wrote sometime between 175 A.D. and 185 A.D., which puts him almost a century and a half before the Council of Nicaea. 
And what's more, we actually have a direct line from Irenaeus back to the first apostles. As it turns out, Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna. And Polycarp was a disciple of John, the same John who wrote the book of Revelation. And it's important to notice that Irenaeus doesn't mention 10 Gospels. He doesn't mention 50 Gospels or 100 Gospels. He mentions four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the same ones we have in our New Testament. In fact, Irenaeus makes a really interesting observation. He says that we probably shouldn't be surprised that there are four Gospels because four is a big number in the history of God's people. In the throne room of God, for example, there are four different faces on the living creatures, a lion, an ox, an eagle, and a man. So Irenaeus compares those faces to the four Gospel accounts. He says, it's only natural there are four different witnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus. So let's ask this, how did he happen to know which books would be the four Gospels without the help of Constantine? If there were really dozens and dozens of alternatives, how did he manage to land on the right ones? Well, the answer is remarkably simple. The New Testament canon was well formed long before the Council of Nicaea. And if you go digging back in real history, you'll find that Irenaeus is by no means the only one. Clement of Alexandria, writing in the last half of the second century, gives us the same four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Justin Martyr, who lived in the first half of the second century, along with one of his students, a guy by the name of Tatian, he mentions that there are two Gospels written by apostles and two Gospels that are written by non-apostles. And of course, that's absolutely true of the Gospels we have today. Matthew and John are the names of two of Jesus' disciples, and Mark and Luke are not. So how did all these guys get it right without the help of the Council of Nicaea? You even have this guy by the name of Papias. And this one is really interesting, to me at least, because Papias says in 125 AD, and that's a very early date, he says that he actually heard the Apostle John preaching. That's right, he heard him. And it's the right time frame because John probably wrote Revelation sometime in the mid-90s of the first century. So it's highly likely Papias did hear him. And here's what he writes about that experience. He says, and I'm quoting him now, and the presbyter, that's his word for John the Revelator, the presbyter said this, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatever he remembered. It was not, however, in exact order that he related the sayings or deeds of Christ, for he neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him. But afterward, as I said, he accompanied Peter, who accommodated his instructions to the necessities of his hearers but with no intention of giving a regular narrative of the Lord's sayings. Wherefore, Mark made no mistake in thus writing some things as he remembered them. For of one thing he took special care, not to omit anything that he heard, and not to put anything fictitious into the statements. Matthew put together the oracles of the Lord in the Hebrew language, and each one interpreted them as best he could. So, so now we have this early account dating back to a sermon that John preached in 90 AD, or pretty close to that, where it says Mark was writing down what Peter told him. This is someone who remembers the care and attention the disciples put into writing the life of Jesus. This is someone who remembers what happened firsthand. He was there. And he says Matthew compiled a gospel too. And what does that mean for our New Testament? It means that very early on, Christians understood that the four Gospels you have in your Bible today are precisely the four Gospels God intended you to have. And I suppose we could go on and on and on because we have by no means exhausted the evidence. 
there are lists of books that date back to the earliest centuries of the church that clearly demonstrate that our New Testament was well-defined long before the Council of Nicaea. We have Ignatius, who talks of Paul's inspired letters. We have Polycarp, quoting from the book of Ephesians. We have Clement, who quotes from the book of 1 Corinthians in the oldest non-biblical letter ever written by a Christian leader. We have the epistle of Barnabas, which quotes the gospel of Matthew as scripture 100 years before Constantine. Look, there's so much evidence that you can rest easy with the New Testament you have. You can believe it. And if you want to study, there is no shortage of opportunity to learn more. Actually, if you want to get your facts from someplace other than YouTube or Facebook, then go to a place like iTunes U. There's all kinds of stuff there. Listen to a credible New Testament scholar, someone like Dr. Michael J. Kruger from Reformed Theological Seminary. I think you're going to be blown away by how much we do know. And if you're not into iTunes U, then go and look up some of the reliable Christian historians. There are lots of them, because you will discover, as Peter once wrote, we have not been following fables. Look, folks, this really happened. Jesus really lived. He really died. He really came back from the dead. The history is reliable. God really did come to this world in human flesh, and he lived among us, and he taught us, and he died among us, and he rose from the dead. Look, go back and read it. It's time to stop reading what people say about the Bible, and it's time to stop building your religious experience on TV specials like Mysteries of the Bible or all those types of shows where the producers know that you've got to start a controversy to get an audience. Those guys are doing it for the money. But really, do you want to build your religious education on a pop documentary written by someone who may or may not actually know God? Go back and read your Bible. It's time for Christians to get re-anchored in the Word. Get acquainted with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I think you'll be shocked at how factual they are. It doesn't read like mythology, even though people want you to believe that. It doesn't sound like a tale of pagan deities, even though people want you to believe that Jesus is just the same as a Greek or Roman god. And if you don't actually go and read the Bible, you might be inclined to believe these people. But please, go and read it, because you will see that it does not read like they say it does. It reads like history. It reads like it was written by people who actually saw what they are talking about. Look, maybe today, as we're getting to the close of this broadcast, let me finish with these words from the Apostle Peter, found in 2 Peter 1, verse 16 and onward. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts." knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter wrote that a long time before Constantine lived, and he said, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. And I think you really owe it to yourself to go back and see what he says. These people really believed someone came back from the dead. They really believed he was God in human flesh. 
and more than that, they saw it with their own eyes, and they did this at a time when there was nothing to gain and everything to lose by living as a Christian. So really, that's my challenge to you. Give it a try. Go back and read it. What do you have to lose? If the apostles are telling the truth, you have everything to gain. I'm Sean Boonstra. Thanks for listening to The Voice of Prophecy. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Where is God when people suffer? Can I find real happiness? And is there any hope for our chaotic world? Are you searching for answers to these and other of life's biggest questions? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or pick up the phone and call us at 888-456-7922 for your free Discover Bible Guides. 888 888- Four five six seven nine two two. Study online on our secure website or have the free lessons mailed right to your home. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions.